Hello, hello! Welcome to another episode of Just Two Dudes Reading Theory. I'm Chris. I'm Preston. And this week we are reading Richard Rorty on Private Irony and Liberal Hope, found within his book Contingency, Irony, and Solidarity. Worst album cover of any book we've read. Yeah, it's a horrible... If anyone uh, is reading this book, it's uh, deeply unpleasant on the eyes. It's... I mean... Can't be the only picture of this man, right? He lectured widely I, and I published would, all over, you know? I might understand this if it's like, ah, oh, yes, we managed to find the only living Polaroid of Richard Rorty. It's, it is, it's objectively a bad picture. It's like out of focus. But in any event, we're it, today we're talking about two, two types of people. We're going to split humanity and we're going to give them two names the ironist and the metaphysicist or the metaphysician and uh preston what is an ironist what do they do well to understand this distinction um it's important to discuss what rorty calls a final vocabulary what is a final vocabulary now the final vocabulary are the words in which we tell, sometimes prospectively and sometimes retrospectively, the story of our lives. It's, you know, it beyond just the words you know as the basic of vocabulary. It's more the ability to use language to communicate, think, expand your knowledge. It is, it's, it's far more than just, I know big words. You can't no, read gonna, a dictionary and expand your final vocabulary. It's well, going to probably be the opposite, right? It's not going to be the big words. It's going to be similar to, like, if you go into value mapping therapy, like family, and then some associations around that that have a thickness, as he says. Mm, yes, and then the thin and flexible, <laughs> like true, good, right, beautiful. They're more generic, maybe? Yeah, and I would say, especially with the way he dives into being an ironist, I think they are words that are far easier to reevaluate what they mean based upon your perspective. Whereas Christ, England, uh, the revolution, the church, these are, as he says, um, thicker. I love rigid that. terms. Yeah, like uh, like an American soldier. The word country is going to be thicker than it would be for me. Yeah, you know, like absolutely. I think it's subjective, right? Like, yes. what what is thick to you is going to be based on your culture and background and values. So there are three important things Rory argues. Um, you need to fulfill to be an ironist. Um, which, uh, I mean, I, I like the argument here. Yeah. The, the, yeah. This, for he, sure. he comes in pretty strong here. This, you know, the, this chapter kind of reminded me of a, like a long movie that like hour and a half or so in, there's like a closing ish scene that you're like, wow, that was pretty good. But then there's an extra act that, yeah, kind of yeah. almost ruins everything that happened before it. I agree. Um, 
yeah, I, I kind of had the same feeling with this this chapter. But arguments for uh, what defines an ironist. So radical and continuing doubts about the final vocabulary uh, she currently uses. Um, I think Rorty uses she to mystify him being an actual ironist in the beginning. Of no, this. I don't think so. Really? No, wait, we'll get to that. Hold on, wait. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, let's do them all. And then, and then I mean, maybe that could be part of it. But I, I had a different idea on that. Which Ooh, is that, I, I'm yeah, excited well, to hear yeah. it. Anyway, when he's talking about ironists throughout this chapter, well, not throughout, for most of the chapter, um, he refers with the, uh, the pronoun of she, whereas the metaphysician, he uses he. Yeah. Um, so, one... Radical and continuing doubts about the final vocabulary she currently uses because she has been impressed by other vocabularies. Vocabularies taken as final by people or books she has encountered. Um, also, the second part of that, I, I don't think he needed the last part of that. The vocabularies taken as final by other people. Well, I think... In, uh, but unless he's referring to it as final, because the final vocabulary in this isn't final necessarily yeah i mean let's talk about that first one a little bit like i think that like in the idea of a final vocabulary obviously you're not gonna you're not gonna learn it in a glass cage well maybe in a glass cage but you're not gonna learn it away from the culture you're in i i just think that like the reason why he's putting it on there is because you know if someone discovers let's say christ as one of the thicker words that is going to lead you to truth in the other view for or truth or falsity in the other view you're going to encounter that in the bible you're going to encounter that from other people in the church i i think like i think it's fine <laughs> yeah I, think, I i can see your problem I, with it though because that, it's like I, or from I, movies or from wherever from no, i kind of thought about it after and i was like oh but no and the way that he's using final is also not like final necessarily because my thought process right. was is if it's just that, then are we only allowed, like, does the ironist only take the word of dead men because their vocabulary no longer changes? No, But I that's think, not what he means by final. I think what he should say is, is like, just wherever language is. I mean, he puts people in books, but also movies and so television, it, you know, whatever, it's slogans. It's kind of what I mean by, like, the yeah. vocabulary is taken as final by people or books. Exactly. She has encountered. Mm -hmm. I got it without that being added in there. Yeah. Um, but I also, I get it. Irrelevant. Um, moving on. Number two. She realizes that argument phrased in her present vocabulary can neither underwrite nor dissolve these doubts. Also like that. Yeah. It's like a good, um, a good skeptic about language in a certain sense. Yeah. And I, uh, there's, I see a lot of parallels with why I enjoyed philosophy. Yeah, I agree. And um, there's a sense that you're not. You're not looking for this capital capital T truth all yes. the time. You're looking for you're looking for difference. I would say in a weird way, looking to rephrase things yeah. like, and it's it's not just rephrasing. I think it it needs to be more than that. It's the a way to rephrase language that it can alter the way in which you literally think the way your like habits work and stuff like things that well like, here's an example 
uh, in the book Metaphors We Live By, they reference, I forget which culture it is, but there is a language that positions the future as behind you and the past is in front of you in their metaphors because the past is what you can see because it already happened, but the future is hidden, so it's behind you. And ah! that logic is tracks pretty easily, and you're like, yes, that makes sense. What? <laughs> Can't do it. <laughs> and that I think that would be the sort of destabilization but that I, he's looking for. That, yeah, the, I think the destabilization is a great term for it, because it's... It's what I asked for when I started getting into this stuff with you. Yeah. When I, I was asking for reading recommendations. You're like, I don't know. What do you want to read? I was like, I don't know. Something that's just going to, like, break my fucking brain. Like, just... Yes. Like, short circuit for a minute. You know, maybe it'd be a bit of a fight there. Yeah. Uh, force you to, to reckon with the fact that the unconscious is the discourse of the other. Right? Like, that you're you're peopled by language in a sense mm. yeah but i mean especially after like reading theory the uh i have found language to be drastically more powerful interesting and mystifying somehow all at the same time well it, well he sort of accepts the the wall of language, which is a phrase from Lacan. And, like, there is this idea that... I mean, there's a horrible phrase, but... That Lacan says, which I think Rorty would love, which is, the symbol is the death of the thing. Which is a mind-melter of an aphorism. But in our, in our context... When we have a symbol of something in reality, there's a there's a kind of almost like a death there like a thing becomes encapsulated mm. more than what it should be in the word or whatever symbol is in place and i think that this that sentence goes way beyond whatever Rorty's doing here so i don't want to get too far off but, no, I, but it's, I like it's that there cause... you know it's definitely in his argument Oof. i mean I think it it serves that there's a bit of vagueness to the statement that yeah. allows it to fit with a lot of different scenarios. Because I instantly thought, like, oh, shit, that tracks with all of your, like, great rising pop stars. Your great, like, musicians that are coming up. As soon as they're a symbol... And it's it's not oh yeah they it's get not sort of frozen like, in the symbolic yes they get sort of frozen like that's so funny that's a great example. there's like yeah. a lot of a lot of examples of like very talented musicians that came up quick like once people found them that like rise was fast but as soon as that like popularity pushes them to where they're literally a symbol for the genre the style the movement um, it's like creative death for so many of these people as they're now stuck in this I'm supposed to do this yeah, yeah. am I doing that because I want to do it did I ever want especially for people who it happens like fucking fast and like you all this shit that's happened right as a musician you're just wanting to play and you're being paid to play yeah. And you're being paid well to play. So I think a lot of them don't even realize, especially Hendrix, I do not think 
realized until it was too late like how much the fame and like attention he was starting to get i think the same kind of thing happened to clapton as soon as yeah, you know like the yeah. whole clapton is god thing being painted on walls went right to his fucking head well and so, then you you uh you do have that capture moment yeah no i think you're right so what's our third one Oh, yes. Uh, number three. Insofar as she philosophizes about her situation... Ooh, this is my favorite one. Oh, yeah. She does not think that her vocabulary is closer to reality than others. That it is in touch with a power not herself. So, the ironist does not believe that there essentially is a capital T truth in language. There is yeah. there is no higher language, which this also man this there are no um this grinds with the end part here like if the ironist is not supposed to think their vocabulary is closer to reality than others, why are we talking about how the oppressed people need others to poets speak and novelists to speak on their behalf because they can't. According to uh, Rorty himself, the ironist does not think their vocabulary is closer to reality than others. Yeah, I kind of was one. I think that's a good point. So at the end of the essay, uh, the second half of the essay is more political and it leaves this orientation type of outline that he's going for at the opening and talks about how it relates to politics. And he talks about this necessity for people who are in either in bondage or just oppressed in some way as sort of needing communicate serious suffering is, yeah. I think is how he introduced it something like so that. so like how i would make what he says more palatable would be that like if someone is truly in bondage then they may not actually have any access points to communicate but what i think he's actually saying which I don't like, is that a person who... And I'm going to go for the, the far end of oppressed, which is just actual slavery, like really existing slavery, is that he almost locates that entire segment of the population as having to be a metaphysician and not being able to be an ironist because of their situation. And I just don't... No, if I agree with that, I think that, like, I think there's a lot of uh, basic definition of irony in, like, early African-American spirituals and, like, Native American humor. And I, I think to say that, like, in the common sense use of the word irony, to say that it's lacking is to successfully take away what they are saying in the way he doesn't want to do it. Which yeah. makes it sort of a contradictory sentiment, right? Like, yeah. Like, <laughs> it's like, but there are poets who are slaves. Like, I don't like, so what about those motherfuckers? <laughs> you know, like, what about, what about all the people who are speaking on behalf of their community and are in the community and are not at a university? I don't know, it just seems I'm, a little ridiculous. And also, it... Not, like, it 
kind of has this edge of like white saviouriness that yeah. you know the intellectuals need to step in and help provide them of this language. Mm, do we? Mm, do we? Isn't reclamation of language, which is such a giant project in indigenous communities around the world, not always related to that? It's not, you know what I mean? Like, like it's not, it's not that. But in order to fully understand, the audience has to know what the... I'm, I'm really curious. I, I wish none... he was around for me to ask. Are, are rappers not poets then? Well, they like, come from an oppressed community. They don't have the language, Chris. Yeah. The, what What are we doing then? Like, I and does he not mean like, oh, well, that's that's not as oppressed as what I'm talking. And about. I know that I might just be scratched on like a surface level, but then my next question would be like, oh, so could you give me the level of what oppressed enough is? Yeah, because like, I think you could make an argument that. Some of what he's saying has some validity, but but first I want to introduce the other side. It, I, yeah, I think it was the way he said it more than anything that bothers me. It really like, there's, it, it's there's some stuff with academy. it that I was like, oh yeah, I can get, but what? No. 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 Why'd we put the semicolon in there? We didn't need the second half of that <laughs> sentence. Um, Alright, so the opposite of irony is common sense. For that is the watchword of those who unselfish, unselfconsciously describe everything important in terms of the final vocabulary to which they and those around them are habituated. It's to take granted that statements formulated in that final vocabulary suffice to describe and judge the beliefs, actions, and lives of those who employ alternative final vocabularies. And so... He's using this term metaphysician, which he tells us it is only to become a metaphysician in the sense of that term, which I am adapting from Heidegger. The metaphysician is someone who takes the question, what is the intrinsic nature of, and then a lot of stuff, justice, science, being, morality, philosophy at face value. He assumes that the presence of a term in his own final vocabulary ensures that it refers to something which has a real essence. So, um... And having a real essence, it's in the on the side of realism over um, nominalism, and this is arguing for a degree of nominalism and anti-essentialist use of language. Basically, that the way we're going to use language for a metaphysician can get closer to a description ultimately of reality. Mm -hmm. um, so flipping around the ironist he does not he thinks that his vocabulary is closer to reality than others mm. flip around and so you know this. so like a lot of people will say well that's like a factually wrong one but a closer like one would be like um religious language religious language to me is like gonna convey all sorts of connotations and semiotics and all sorts of stuff but it's never going to reach God. It's never going to happen. It's just, there's going to be a wall there, even if the word gives you the feeling that you've reached God. Mm. I also, the other part of this I like that he talked about with common sense. When common sense is challenged, its adherents respond at first by generalizing 
and making explicit the rules of the language game they are accustomed to play. Yeah, this little line. And so language game is a term from Wittgenstein, from Philosophical Investigations, his second book. Go on. This instantly made me think of a lot of, like, anti-transgender rhetoric nowadays with how a lot of people are like, no, there's... I, I saw this, like, this specific argument that, like, look, I don't care what you want to call yourself, but language is the one thing we all have to agree on as a universal... And, you know, there is two pronouns for genders. And that's just the way language is. And I'm like, I and, 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 I think you are <laughs> wrong at yeah. the very base level. I think, if anything, language is one of the things we continually disagree on, evolve, and change. Well, like, and I mean, and it's also very anti-fictionalist in a sense of like, well, what about if I write a science fiction novel? And in that science fiction, this is just Ursula Le Guin, but like, you know, there's five genders that have five pronouns. In the, in the Rorty view, we might have tickled someone's, what is it, fundamental language? What did he call it? Final vocabulary. Fin tickled someone's final vocabulary. And if you tickle it in fiction, you tickle it elsewhere. That's... <laughs> It's I kind think of a strange sentence. I wish I never said in my life, but hey, you know. I mean, I think you told me once that uh, I think one of the uh, like first steps to curing narcissism is getting a narcissist to read fiction. Yeah, they have to empathize with um, the character. They have to they have to get outside of their view of the world, and therefore they have to get outside of their language. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I, they have to, they have to I, find a different language. I don't know. I think I mean I I get why Rorty kind of focuses a lot on like the books and reading and why there is an obsession with that, but I also don't agree that it's like the ultimate art form either. Well, like I love literature, but it's not the only way to convey messages and whatnot. Well, he doesn't. He's not a music guy. You know, he was like, I mean, I have no idea even where like, to put music. I wonder if he just didn't want to touch the medium with a 10-foot pole because it's such a minefield ontologically. Yeah. I mean, you're just like... But, I mean, well, even... What, like, what side are we going to be on with that shit, you know? With books versus movies. Yeah. The, like, sentiment that, you know, the book is the superior medium, I, I think is dumb. As much as I love literature and the... When it comes to movie adaptations, vast majority yeah. of the time... The, the book's going to be better inherently. But I don't think that film is any less viable an art form in... In the binary we're talking about? Yeah, yeah in, so, in what we're talking about here. So he, he describes the... So we have two attitudes towards books, kind of what we were hinting at. So he says, Metaphysicians see libraries as divided according to disciplines corresponding to different objects of knowledge. Ironists see them as divided according to traditions, each member of which partially adopts and partially modifies the vocabulary of the writers whom he has read. And I just, sometimes with Rorty, this is like where I think reading Rorty is a double-edged sword for me. On the one hand, I sometimes think his examples are fine. And on the other hand, when I actually think about my own library, I have, I just don't relate to anything he said at all 
Like, I don't, you know, because I, I mean, truth be told, I, I would consider myself on the off the deep end, ironist view of life. Just, I just, I just like everything he's saying there. I'm like, yeah, that's generally my approach. Minus a few things, of course. But like, you know, I think there's, you're going to be, everyone's going to be a certain mixed bag based on their pasts. But like, when I come to the library, I'm like, well, mine's definitely by discipline. So I know where they are. I I don't know. Like, I know the example he was, like, trying to get to here, but I just think the, like, using the library was a bad bad metaphor. Because I'm, I'm, like, the same way. Like, Like, I don't... (laughs) It's not like, ah, well, Tolkien era. I believe only Tolkien, and Tolkien is my way. These are the words. I mean, okay. And that's why I organize my books by Tolkien and everything non-Tolkien based upon how close it is to Tolkien. Well, I mean, I think, okay, okay, to give him a little steel, man, I know a person at my job who is like, I organize my biography section based on least intimidating to most intimidating human. I thought that was really great. So, like, least intimidating is, like, Amy, Amy Poehler, and then most intimidating was, like, Nero. <laughs> and, like, okay, so then you have a nested ironist, right? Because you have the... I think the problem with the example to get really super overwhelmingly nitty-gritty is that we, libraries in general, we've inherited a view of topic. And then I think within topic... If we don't organize by the alphabet, then the ironist comes out. Huh. You know, like, I have a continental theory library, and it's just, like, what I've read and what I haven't read. Hmm. And, like, but, you know, I do have another classics library where I'm trying to go from most enjoyable to least enjoyable on a Sunday afternoon for me. And, like, that's more playful right you know yeah. you gotta do more work and, and, and it's not just about object of knowledge but the category is like just the basic what shelf is this go- on i just think that part of my practical lens on that is that i keep the object of knowledge at my hand and use it and it doesn't bother me that i do that and i don't i would be worried if it bothered someone it's like i mean you do you on your library a man. big problem i have with this metaphor is i feel like having my different traditions and disciplines separated allows me to better access the knowledge I want from each of them as an ironist would. It's... Yeah. I don't know why he's using a form of organization as the metaphor here unless he's trying to change my perspective on organization. He's redesigning organization. And it wasn't... Oh, um... There's a great on the same page kind of other quote about metaphysicians metaphysicians believe that there are out there in the world real essences which it is our duty to discover and which are disposed to assist in their own discovery they do not believe that anything can be made to look good or bad by being redescribed or if they do they deplore this fact and cling to the idea that reality will help us to resist such seductions i think i had a teacher who was kind of on the side of um of uh the metaphysician you know he was very like his writing was very analytic and very Mm. particular in how he phrased things and you know he was instead of saying phrased good or bad he would say phrased right or wrong and i think that's sort of um i mean when i was younger i took that as a mark of not being very intelligent (laughs) 
<laughs> and I think that's wrong. I think it's actually a really noble pursuit to be clear with your language. I don't think that's a problem. I so I, I, I don't it's not that I don't like metaphysicians in certain aspects. I think so many students show up to college as a bundle of thoughts. And I do think that part of our job as teachers is to play the part of the metaphysician sometimes. Even if it's not, even if it's still from the ironist perspective, to put on the fictional hat metaphysician and help them get to something real. And, and I, I, even if it's not, even if it's at the end illusory, I, I think that, you know, a person who finally understands what 1451 is can be seduced into thinking theory as primally more real, but what they're first going to take is it's more useful, <laughs> right? Like it's going to be a thing they can do and work with and that'll be great. And that's my goal. <laughs> you know, it's not like, Oh, well they are going to do these things and then it's, and now you have a fundamental connection to reality. It's here's it's a human groundwork. Yeah. That's it. Like at least for me, and this is being on both sides of it. Yeah. You go into school and you're like, ah, yes, I'll take my theory classes and then I will understand how music moves in all the ways. Yeah. And that's... Uh, no, no? No, because it, you'll get lulled into a sense where traditional music theory is right and the 20th century is wrong until someone gives 12-tone its truth and then it's right too. And then, and then you're like, what are we doing here? Isn't this just like... We're just kind of making it up anyway, like... I don't we know. made it I up, just... and then someone continued, and then you have a genre, right? Good. Like... It is good. I mean, one of my comp classes, I always just like, like before listening to the piece, you look at it, be like, "Oh, but I don't know. That voicing isn't gonna work. Like, yeah. this is too far. This isn't in the theory rules. Like, you shouldn't make jumps like that." And it's like, I mean, kind of the same thing, but it sounded good, so I did it. And then yeah. we'll listen to it, and you'd be like, "Okay, yeah, okay, that that's okay here. Like, that's actually fine here." It sounds good. It is good. <laughs> no, no, and that's and that's true. And I think that like um, one reason I peg myself as an ironist is when I taught music theory, whenever someone asked a question like, "Yeah, but what about all the music that don't do the thing we're doing?" We had a discussion about historical epics, and like, well, you know, and I never told them like this is true for this period and false for a different period. I just said this is the way the medium sort of disclosed itself to people at the time, mm. you know, and, and it changes, you know, it. you know, it's, it's disclosed in different ways. And that doesn't mean that writing parallel fifths in your fake Bach prelude is right. It means that you've disclosed the wrong era. <laughs> Actually, I think what you've disclosed is not grasping the subject matter, but you know, but still, I mean, it's not like, it's, it's, it's like folly in that way doesn't mean the student is an ironist. Mm. It, they yeah. might put that cloak on, you know, but it usually means they don't know the era very well. But often students will say, will bring in, oh, well, I want to be different, I want to do this stuff, and I think that's all great, and I want everyone to write music where they do that, but when we're doing music from common practice era and learning how to write good voice leading it's like not part of the language game or it is mm. part of the language game but in a very specific way 
Definitely. But, getting back to our metaphysicians here. Ah, uh, yes. This spot in particular, um, I think that the, uh, the metaphysician he speaks of is very much the, uh, like, religious upbringing that I had there. The, uh, there, there is no different perspective that alters right and wrong. It is, it's right and wrong. Although... But then that forces you to take a very specific... In order to be responsible, doesn't that force you to confront which biblical translation you think is right? Oh, the Mormonism skipped over that. Joseph Smith fixed the Bible. Didn't you hear that? Oh, so they kind of bypassed that He No, Joseph part Smith fixed the Bible. You want to hear the correct translation... Straight from God's mouth, through Joseph Smith's illiterate hands, Joseph Smith translations of the Bible. Okay. <laughs> so, this leads to an even deeper problem. And I think we already all know what it is, which is, let's assume that he was the messenger of God. Let's assume everything you've said is just like, in the metaphysician sense, true. Right? Then the problem you have is one where God disclosed two languages to you. You know, like the ancient Hebrew and the and the English. And you have to reckon with the numerous problems of bilingual. Oh God. my friend! Have you never heard of the Urm and Thummim? No. Oh Chris. Oh Chris. They didn't have to worry about that. God gave Joseph Smith seer stones called the Urm and Thummim. And oh yeah, no, no, no. He I mean, put he, them in the stovepipe hat. And no, no, then no. I'm assuming did the translation. No, no. I'm assuming that's. I'm assuming that right. That he is the mouthpiece of God. What you have then is God translating his text from one language, which means that. Okay, the implications would follow that any other text translated from that language to English if it was in that passage. Okay, so let's imagine in the Bible it says... Well, it's already assuming that you can directly translate Well, I was, I was giving a Hebrew to English. A, okay, but like, let's imagine you have the dog crossed the road. Okay, and that's in ancient Hebrew. And in English it translates to the dog crossed the road. Except the word road, let's imagine... I mean, I don't know the, the, the ancient language, but like, let's assume that there's like, that word signifies some other things. But then in another text, not related to the Bible, you now have the way God wants you to translate road into English. <laughs> <laughs> and that's just silly. I mean, that's just like, right? Because if it's right there, uh, one would argue it would be right elsewhere. <laughs> I mean, you're, you're right. Uh, it, I mean, if I'm not, there's still a whole host of other issues. And I know religious <laughs> scholars deal with these issues a lot. It's not like I'm bringing up anything new. I just, I just think that um, one of the, one of the problems with the the hardcore metaphysician view on language that Rorty's outlining is that any truth 
that you even agree that they reach about a statement becomes fodder for the ironist in ways that in the second half of the essay Verdi talks about as being possibly cruel but but it but that problem's there mm. and so it makes an imbalanced relationship where the other where the two don't not only see eye to eye but have a misview of the other I, yeah i it from reading the chapter it it seems like the ironist seems like a pestering antagonist that like is just rocking the boat to rock the boat. Um, just, perverse view. Y- yes, a perverse absolutely. View, a perverse yes. stance on language, in a sense. Um, which I think he just agrees with, doesn't he? He kind of just says the ironist can't posit original content in that way. Original, not in the sense like a, obviously an ironist can be an artist, but like can't posit. Since they can't, since they're barred from being closer to reality, the ironist can't posit in earnestness a view that they are closer to reality and then goof around with it. Oh, right, you know. Yes, like, like, hey, yes, I I know exactly what you mean. I mean to simplify, it's the like, why would I want to be atheist when I'm happy being a Christian? Like, not all Christians were miserable like me. Yeah. There's plenty of very happy Christians. Why would they give any weight to the argument of an atheist that's like, hey, come on over here. We have nothing after. It's just it, nothing. <laughs> we got good jokes. <laughs> I think just nothing after. All right. So I think you're right. I think switching gears just a little bit. Um, a little later in the essay, not not right when we get to politics, but um, he's outlining further the metaphysician. And um, he says, the metaphysician agrees with the Platonic theory of recollection in the form in which this theory was restated by Kierkegaard. Namely, that we have the truth within us, that we have built-in criteria which enable us to recognize the right final vocabulary when we hear it. And I want to unpack that a little bit because I think people without a knowledge of certain Christian discourses and Platonic discourses are going to be like, what? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the original idea in Plato is, is roughly speaking that knowledge, when you learn something and gain knowledge, you're remembering something that you've forgotten. And spot on, which Christian is a belief. Beautiful. You learned everything in the pre-existence. You, you forgot you it when you came through the veil to Earth. So all of these revelations that you feel as you get yeah. closer on your path and now, to spirituality <laughs> are not you learning new things that make you feel good. Mm-hmm. They're revelations of what is literally your past eternal life. Which really opens up a fascinating phenomenology of an Eureka moment, right? Because because you can experience the Eureka moment as something new or as something remembered. And it makes me a little uncomfortable to think that you could have these Eureka moments, but for me that actually tracks in my experience. That the, at that moment it's not specific enough to decide on its own which one you've approached. I I think eureka moments or epiphanies, as yeah, my teacher likes to call them. Um, yeah, 
at least in the musical sense, for me, these revelations and like the the light suddenly shining are not necessarily new, but they are new to me in the way that I'm finally perceiving them. Yes. But they are a product of old memories finally hitting the right spot where it oh, yeah. clicks. Yeah, yeah. So those epiphany moments, like the milestone moments where you're like, oh shit, I get this. And suddenly it's this domino effect of all these other things you've kind of been touching on in music mm-hmm kind of just click into place after that yeah these uh oh now i keep thinking epiphany now with the what was the word you used for it the eureka moment the eureka moment yes yeah the those those moments at least in like at least later for me in life were a product of synthesizing yes yeah former things floating around that finally lined up in the right light, timing, context, yeah. various things to make it go like, oh, shit. Another another weird aspect that kind of plays into what you're saying is so, you know, I was a trained pianist and um, there's an experience of learning something on the piano. And then because we're so weird with memory... You know, I have muscle memory where if you ask me go play the opening of Beethoven's first piano sonata, it's like, yeah, of course. Da, 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 da. And the the part where it shifts experientially is like, oh, it fits so well. Huh. It fits so well that my muscle memory actually was first. <laughs> I just had to remember what my muscles could do. Which is... <laughs> Wrong, I mean, I think. I just think it's beautiful. Dude, I, <laughs> yeah. but that's, I think that's often how it feels with mm-hmm. things, like, it, and it may be a product of how, like, you know, I think for most people learning musical instruments, once you get past that initial, like, your first rises and plateaus that are pretty quick, Yeah. the rise of your awareness, ability, and talent, if you're grinding away at it, is at a rate that you often can't perceive it until you kind of look back and go, oh, this uh, this used to be a lot harder. This used to be impossible. But there's a lot of things, like especially with like improv and stuff, it just, this falls under your hands. It doesn't feel like you're fighting it at all. Yeah. It often feels like a revelation, but I... I think it was Herbie Hancock that said, like, all improv is just formerly rehearsed things. Yeah. It's just the way that it is combining in that moment from different things that makes it new. Exactly. I think, and then, and then, and the second half of our thing here, it's just like the Kierkegaard aspect, the reason why that reformulation happens, I'm guessing, is in part so that we now also have the Christian aspect. Mm. You know, you know the word of God. And this becomes obscene in the 20th century. Because in the 20th century, you have what are called presuppositionalist apologists, which take this sentiment to a obnoxious place, which is that everybody in the world has an innate knowledge of their specific God, and you have repressed it. Which is 
not a fun way to begin a discussion with a person. <laughs> Just like letting you know, <laughs> having gotten into a couple YouTube arguments before, it's like, well, this is getting nowhere really fast <laughs> because... Well, I guess I just repressed it, so everything I say is just blah, 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 blah. You know, I mean, covering up the fundamental problem. It just, it makes total sense to me, Chris. Once I embraced Odin as my lord and savior, I really just felt complete in this world. I had been denying my original legacy's true god. Probably. <laughs> I mean, if someone actually says that to you, the best you can do is, good job. Wow. Okay. See ya. But, I mean, this side of things, you know, we're using the Christian argument as sort of an easy in, but this is where the gender aspect that Rorty's hitting at comes in. So often in the scientists, sciences, this is not a new phenomenon, there is a gender split in the way language is used between the masculine truth of science and the feminine dancing around in the arts. And that the truth of the sciences, well, like a lightning bolt, tell the truth and explain the aspect and give reality its true existence, I guess. But... Um, so when he uses the pronoun she for the ironist, I think he's doing that with that knowledge in mind. And I think that it's I think he needs to eliminate that from his final vocabulary. We just I Oh, I think it's a very feminist point that he's trying to make. I think he's I, playing on the and, I mean argument. this was 60-70s, right? I then I see its sentiments, but I also, I don't know, a lot of the, like, gender divide stuff I just feel is often dated. Like, masculinity is the truth, and femininity is the beauty dancing around truth. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah, no shit. But, like, I think that's why he's doing that is not, is actually, because he's on the side of the ironist. Oh, okay. No, it's so, all you right. see, the, yeah, the reason yeah. why he's on the side of the if he was on the side of... Well, I think it'd be a strange article. I think that he's so on the side of the ironist that I don't know if he is the man to talk to about the metaphysician. <laughs> <laughs> like, presupposed in this chapter of the book is that's bad, this good. And he tries to get away from that in the second half, but I don't... Like, like the pitfalls for him of the ironist involve politics for him. And uh, I think we should... I'm sorry, the ironist and their philosophy has no place in politics. There is no... According to, to Rorty. There's no... Well, because he references the lineage of, like, of Nietzsche and, and then Freud and then... Um, uh, then Derrida, and I think, I mean, I'm assuming this is before some of the works from Derrida that are, like, not possible to align with what he's talking about. Because, like, Derrida <laughs> wrote the essay on cosmopolitanism and talks about the divide of city-states, and it's a political essay. I mean, I don't know how else you don't... I mean, it's like, in general, Derrida might be on that side, and I think he's on the side of ironists for sure, but I think that 
I think that was published later, though, was the problem. So I think if we're thinking early Derrida, then we're thinking hermeneutics, phenomenology, deconstruction, and I guess, sure, yeah. But I think that the call to action for us would be to just go to Google and say, political theories based on Derrida, political theories based on Nietzsche, and political theories based on whoever. Um, I mean, he... Two of the people he groups with the ironists that that line of thinking is not relevant in politics. Nietzsche and Heidegger, you know, so unpolitical. They just happen to commonly be aligned with one of the most well-known political movements of human history. I think, I think that... I think that in general, the way Rorty's style is cutting, he's just looping in big names. I I think he's okay, but but I think that the problem is is a little different. I think that, like when I read Nietzsche, there's this stoic aspect. There's this individualistic aspect. There's a lacking, often what we should do. But I think that in other Nietzsche, there's a completely different version of the man. Um, I'm looking right now at the volume I gave you, Anti-Education, where it's lectures when he was very young on the education system in Germany, and it's political. It's, it's just political. I, I don't know how <laughs> a book titled Anti-Education isn't going to dip its toes pretty heavily into some politics. There. I guess it's not the politics he wants to talk about. For Heidegger, I think it's a little different. I, I think Heidegger... You know, Zizek is great in... Um, I in also am you know, still confused as to how, like... Were, was the Nazi movement just using him as an intellectual name? Because I don't really see a whole lot of... Alignment between... No, uh, it's very famous. So, Nietzsche didn't... <sighs> Nietzsche was really good friends with Wagner, but Wagner mainly used him as a lackey boy. He was a lot older, and they broke off their friendship. And if I remember right, his justification was the certain reasons. One of them was Wagner's anti-Semitism. So there's one strike against the Nazis. Another was Wagner's turn to Christianity. And even more importantly, Wagner's turn to nationalism. So Nietzsche... So there's some problems. <laughs> well, that, that's another one. Like, I get the whole, like, Uberman thing that they adopted, but... I don't know. I feel like most of Nietzsche's stuff doesn't really scream nationalism to me. I mean, not not Germans, but definitely he, like... There's parts of, like, his philosophy that implicates others, like French Enlightenment thinking, um... And also Americans, like, I forget which book, it might have been the gay science, he has a quote, like, are Americans destined to become the next Greeks? And I guess you could, you could take that as, as the statement, which is like a personal way of being, you know, perfecting the self or whatever that Rorty's talking about. But I mean, God, there's a lot of politics that has to go into that to make that sentence work, I think. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot there that has to be assumed about the culture and the bigger structure of the country. Mm. Um, yeah, I think it's I think it's hard. I think um, I think that one thing that Rorty misses 
even though he claims dialectic thinking, which we, I mean, we're doing a podcast where we're talking to each other, so it's inherently dialectic, is like, I think he misses the obscene flip side of the ironist. Like, he puts the ironist on this, like, Heidegger on the side of the ironist, and I think that, like, what he sometimes doesn't account for is the reading of the other as metaphysical, as metaphysic. So, like, Rorty takes Heidegger in as an ironist, but what if the Nazis, in part of their goal, and maybe Heidegger's goal at the time, took himself as on the side of metaphysics? Oh. You see what I mean? Like, yes. That, that, and that might, it's, that's a problem that's going to plague the metaphysician. It's literally using his own argument of irony in a in a pretty good flip there. Like, the, the redesignation of, you know, the way we look at language to alter mm-hmm. perspective and stuff. I'm like, what? So, we could redesignate these things in a... I don't know. I'm going to be a little bit of an unironist and say that Nazis <laughs> were objectively evil. Um, but, you know, like, they... There were philosophies by people, I I mean, Heidegger renounced Nazism. Sort of. He didn't do a very good job. He he turned, Preston, he turned away. He did the, uh, does... he did the celebrity rehab and apology at a press, press <laughs> he, conference. No, he didn't apologize. He said, in his last interview, he said, like, that was the right thing to do at the time, if I remember right. Horrible, right? Um, but but actually, so like, I, I mean, I'm gonna give him, I'm gonna Just give like Rorty reeks of arrogance too. Like, oh Heidegger, mm, arrogant? Yeah. What? <laughs> yes. Well, I suppose it was the right thing to do. Yeah. You think? Do you do you think that was the right thing? Isn't it weird that all your colleagues left? <laughs> <laughs> Remember no. when you had your teacher who you dedicated a book to scrubbed from. From the, the book. book. It was being in time. Like, the book. The, yeah, the book. Yeah. Well, okay, so he says, like, um, um, I'm just going to, this is not going to be a good place to begin the sentence, but begin a tradition of ironist philosophy, which is continued in Nietzsche, Heidegger, and Derrida. These are the philosophers who define their achievement by their relation to their predecessors rather than by their relation to the truth. And I'm going to give him a little credit. That, that, that might I'm I'm not as bothered by his way of phrasing that, because um, if you remember Heidegger's view of truth and aletheia as as revealing, the metaphor you always hear is like the idea of um, a spotlight illuminating a part of a room, and knowledge gives you access to change the direction of the spotlight, but mm. every time something is illuminated, something else falls into shadow, and that's an ironist view of truth. Ooh. You know, I mean, that's just, that's, that has to be. I would, to, I would say be. inherently. Has to be. Yes. Because I think that, the metaphysician that, would that's say. That's a good metaphor. Thank God I fucking turned on the damn light. <laughs> you know, I think that like, and then I saw the whole room. And like, I think that would be the, the like fucking fundamental difference. I think that was a little better than the library metaphor. Not going to lie. Well, he didn't, he didn't, I was, that was, that's Heidegger's metaphor. I didn't, or some, I didn't even know where I got it. That's not in the essay. He kind of glances over the names still still better metaphor than the library yeah because like i mean so i don't believe that humans have like a carrying capacity for knowledge 
other than death, I guess. <laughs> you don't Sorry, believe that's... in the whole ram thing? There's only so much room up there. It was like it reminds me of a remember when that Donald Trump was like, I don't exercise because I believe in there's like a finite number of steps. Oh yeah. <laughs> but like, but like on that, on the flip side, I think even more of like yeah. a series of interlocked plants throughout this great web that as you nurse them they grow and connect to other plants but if you're not nursing these certain areas they kind of just shrivel up a bit but it's not that they like disappear entirely yeah you can dim the you light got to reach a new little plant some water back out to them <laughs> yeah. and suddenly you can bring that shit back out yeah i think that is a little bit of a better idea of how i think of how your brain works. I don't think we're like computers where we're like, well, that's all the memory I got in this old model. I gotta, gotta kick out them old recipes to scooch this on in here. On the flip side, um, the internet doesn't forget. You have the Wayback Machine. I mean, you can delete pages and people do and the servers die, but let's, let's imagine in the thought experiment that like there's an infinite space. And this is obviously a terrible argument because ecology people would say there's not an infinite number of space. Your emails are destroying the earth, you know? But like, but like, you know, the internet, what's horrifying about the internet, thinking of it as like a fictional subject, is that it's a repository. It's not repressed. That's totally different from everything we're fucking talking about here, but that's just like a thought, you know? And Ooh. that can really make people uncomfortable when you go, oh, you know, I went back to your 2012 Facebook account and I noticed... I'm sorry, 2012 me died 11 <laughs> years ago. Thank you very much. <laughs> you know, and, and you can be horrified because it's just right there. It's yeah, it's kind of true. You know, like, it'll take you time to scroll. But, but um, okay, so he does something cool here. Right at this point in the essay, he stops using she for the ironist. And now we begin our we yep, thing. Yep, we ironists. We ironists. So now he's just like dropped all pretension and is like, I'm an ironist and so can you. No, really? I couldn't tell from the way we've talked about our two parties here that our writer might be an ironist. I mean, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And then, uh, okay. So on the next page, he gives us a pretty good outline of like what I would do in a class as an introduction to certain aspects of postmodernism because it's a hard word and I don't really use it very much because I just like to think of individual thinkers but but this one's pretty good for us ironists nothing can serve as a criticism of a final vocabulary save another such vocabulary there is no answer to a redescription save a re redescription re re redescription yeah since there is nothing beyond vocabularies which serve as a criterion of choice between them Criticism is a matter of looking on this picture and on that, not of comparing both pictures with the original. And that ending point with, you know, not comparing to an original, I mean, that's going to really hook up to later when we read Baudrillard. Mm. It's, it's this idea that there's not an original to refer to. I like Because the original here in the metaphor is reality. Good metaphor. Good metaphor he put in there. That was, I liked that one. The idea that we're not... We're not critiquing these things based upon the core work. We're observing the differences between 
a series of paintings, if you will. It's leveling. Yeah. You know, you don't have... You there have a level no and you have an abyss. Bottom. Yeah. Yeah, you have the abyss, or Abgrund, as Heidegger would say, below, which is nothing. And that's why that's why Lacan also would fit... I mean, dumpster fire to try and figure out where Lacan fits on this. I don't even want to try right now, please. Let's not. But, I am an ironic metaphysician. Uh, yeah, I mean, a little, because, hey. like, the, the structures are real, right? Like, the, the math themes are... But, okay, sure, Lacan. <laughs> you can have everyone's cake, and you can Lacan. eat them all in front of us. But, like, I think that the real here is the... The real is the original picture that doesn't exist that the other paintings are based on. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I right? Like, like that's, that's, great. that's how you do the real. For, I, uh, for... Yeah, like, on this stuff, I, I think he kind of wraps up the, uh, the kind of point of the ironist is, you know, we ironists, once again, we ironists hope by this continual redescription to make the best selves for ourselves that we can. Yeah. I, I think that's the first half. I mean, I think that's most of it. I, I We're running out of time, but let's do a little bit on our political. Okay. Now that we got through the stuff we enjoyed. Yeah. The, I don't know, the, the second half kind of got off the rails for me a little bit. Yeah, it... it it fits into his larger political project and in a sense like one of the things he says is that the situation has led to the accusations of irresponsibility against ironist intellectuals because we're not searching for objective truth in that capacity but also because there's a view that Rorty has that the far left project of Marxism from like Habermas and others is that Marxism exists synchronously, meaning like it's going to be true at every time period. It's going to be, you can look at any economy and look at their production of labor, and you can, you can look at any country and any people in the world through that lens. And I don't even know if I have an opinion on that. I think like you could, I think an economist would say yes, and we do all the time. But like, I also think that you, what you're missing when you do that is probably still found within the domain of the ironist. Yeah, I, I think I'd agree with you there. Um, I do like the way he talks about dismantling this view of irresponsibility on the part of the ironist. Yeah. Because he groups it with the same argument that with a decline of, you know, strong religious values and as, you know, less people are religious you know, will fall further and further into a decline of, you know, moral decay because we won't have solid morals. Yeah. Um, yeah, and, and, and it, it hinges a lot 
he's talking a lot about Habermas on the idea of ideology critique, which we find in Zizek, of course, and a lot of others. But like, in this footnote, he kind of makes clear some of his thoughts on that approach, where he says, in contrast, Habermas and those who agree with him that ideology critique is central to philosophy think there is quite a lot to say. The question turns on whether one thinks that one can give an interesting sense to the word ideology, make it mean more than bad idea. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Uh, That's a little mean, because like... A little bit, <laughs> but also, I mean, clearly biased on this one. It made me chuckle. It made me chuckle, it too. Me it was chuckle, just a funny... Because, sure. I mean, I could turn around and be like, okay, well, I think that you mean good idea for Ironist. And then <laughs> there, there you go, Rorty. Like, that's, I mean, I love you, but fuck you, too, you know? It's like, <laughs> yeah, I think, like... Um, yeah, so the argument here is Habermas and other metaphysicians who are suspicious of a merely literary conception of philosophy think that liberal political freedoms require some consensus about what is universally human. Mm. We ironists who are also liberals think that such freedoms require no consensus on the topic any more basic than their own desirability. And I think that, like, look at, look at like, um, blue-collar America today. Don't you see a really big battleground with that right now? Yeah, I'm like, going to go a little bit of yes, a little bit of no on this one. Yeah. Like, I get where he's, he's coming from with their own desirability. I can definitely get that. But one that I think doesn't quite fit, that I think is, for the most part, like, somewhat of a human consensus is, like, freedom from slavery like i know that we're all in various levels of you know lack of real freedom you know sure. freedom's just another word for nothing left to lose right <laughs> yeah but like the ability to at least have the illusion of choices seems like an important part of developing as your own person and not well, it's I think a yeah. product for people, if yeah. that makes sense. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think another another point that we can like talk about is like um, a lot of people who voted for Trump, their second choice was Bernie Sanders. And I don't know if Rorty would see that point because it shows that the battleground of ironist versus metaphysician is active in blue-collar America itself. It's not like blue-collar America is Christian and can't do a labor union. <laughs> you know, it's like there's this sort of weird... I mean, I think that, like, you know, when you talk to blue-collar people, they're not... I mean, again, like, I only know... A couple, but a lot of people in my family come from a blue-collar background on my dad's side. And it's not necessarily this idea that, like, it's not always the people who vote for Trump are voting for a, a sky daddy to come back. They do think that they, they're going to be wrong, I think. But, like, there's some practical reason for doing so that fits the ironist model. Yeah, I, I, I would agree with you there. Yeah. Um, but I think we need to discuss the 
the unfortunate little flip we had mentioned at the beginning here when he's um, talking about how the intellectuals need to save us. Oh yeah, it's at the very end. Uh, ah, here we go. Yeah, yeah. So, pain is non-linguistic. Um, it is what we human beings have that tie us to non-language using beasts. So victims of cruelty, people who are suffering, do not have much in the way of language. Mm -hmm. In this context, I think I can at least give some credit so far. Right. That is why there is no such thing as the voice of the oppressed or language of the victims. Yeah. Getting on some shaky ground here. Yeah. The language the victims once used is not working anymore, and they are suffering too much to put new words together. All right, dude. First half of that, I could actually get behind, like, as an argument, it comes from, I think, Elaine Scarry's book on torture, The Body in Pain. The idea that when you're being tortured, you can't think. I mean, I mean, it's more complicated than that, but, you know, for our purposes, yeah. <laughs> but sure. I very much disagree with the second half that they are suffering too much to put new words together. Yeah, like... I think I really disagree with that. Wouldn't... Wouldn't we argue that on the good side reading articles from marginalized people functions in the way he wants but we didn't write the papers <laughs> right like there's we didn't i wasn't born on the navajo reservation i wasn't mm. born arapaho you know there's like a, i wasn't born in inner city Detroit, so in a sense, like, yeah, there, there is an ethical duty to act as a mouthpiece for common betterment. And for a lot of other reasons, just like, well, this is a different way of life. What does someone say? It's going to be different. But there's also a sense in which they do have to say something. <laughs> so, yeah, and this is where it really goes, like, yeah, nope, don't, mm. So the job of putting their situations into language is going to have to be done for them by somebody else. The liberal novelist, poet, or journalist is good at that. But what about, like, there was a poet who was just murdered in Ukraine, definitely being oppressed by Russia in a certain sense. He's still a poet. I mean, I forget the name of the guy. It was, it was very sad. But, like, there, there's a sense in, like, well, wait a minute, like, people are speaking yeah the problem is we're not listening yeah <laughs> it's not that people don't talk or it's, don't or don't yeah, communicate it's not that effectively they don't have the language we're yeah. ignoring the language at best there yeah and we here means just part of the more privileged parts of society and college educated would be more privileged and you can act as a mouthpiece but that mouthpiece can also be swallowed up and taken into the college academy and then you have a very very clear idea of the suffering of a people from a very theoretical standpoint instead of someone on the ground who's a human aid worker mm. and i think that like well 
like again on the side where he's right like if a human aid worker in rwanda writes about her experience in a sense that's functioning in the way rorty wants but what i want is the people themselves and i don't think that that's a tall claim i i feel like you know until recently and i mean i i think that i'm pretty sure cordova brought this up in the article we talked about like for a lot of oppressed people they're being talked about or for they're not the ones a part of the fucking conversation yeah, it's like actually word for word the like disagreement between Cordova and ties in to what, yeah. what they're talking about. I mean, it, that is a very historically oppressed people who are that talking to Rorty <laughs> don't have the language anymore. And I I think we we literally have objective evidence otherwise, with Cordova arguing that that's you need to readdress your final vocabulary on that thought process, Rory. Yeah, and I think you have because... to do it pretty fundamentally. Like I think it's just wrong. I think I mean I mean like like okay, so you have, and and the reason why I'm mentioning Native Americans is because it's such a obvious group that he would say is historically oppressed, and I would too, obviously. But like, also. As VF Cordova outlined, that's part of the problem is is people aren't and I think I think like our engagement with her and I have another one for us from Ann Waters coming up, like that's more in the step that I wanna go than what Rorty would say, because like I don't know, he's not referencing many oppressed people in his essay, writers or philosophers otherwise, he's not referencing people who are in a scenario where they're speaking and depressed. And so in sort of not referencing that, it's like he doesn't see it, and it's exactly what you said. It's not in his final vocabulary. And I think I think one final thing, just really quick. I think that, like, so if you're a publisher of novels, then you listen to Rorty, but instead of saying, I need to write a novel as a white person about the plight of the Trail of Tears in the 1830s, what would be more ethical is, you know, like, I'm going to publish a living writer who's native. And I, I just, I, I, I guess, and I mean, also write your own book on, I mean, it's not like, there's not like we can't have both. I just, I just don't think that the solution is that white people on, speak on behalf of others. Do you, uh... In the, in the way that Rarty's saying... As a hypothetical here, mm -hmm. do you think, like, this rise in obsession with authenticity that a lot of people seem to have and a lot of arts and everything like that, could that which... Personally, I think it's counterproductive. Anyways, would that movement and obsession with authenticity possibly help move the needle in the right direction on something like this because how, how authentic, like, and I, I know that, you know, I'm, I'm not trying to diminish yeah. 
studying another culture and publishing what you've learned on it. No, no, of course not. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't, we would have to only read. Yeah. Like, like Eurocentric. I'm, I'm not people. arguing yeah, yeah. for like, listen, only so-and-so people can talk about so-and-so people. I think that, that's ridiculous. Absurd. But I definitely think we can change the ratio here. And, you know, it well, might like be nice to have literally a perspective from the other side of a pretty clear-cut conflict are, here. I think people are scared to engage. I think, I think sometimes when, like, when like Zizek didn't engage with cultural perspectives from Tiananmen Square, I wonder if he went, that's a minefield, won't touch, instead of... That's the minefield I need to be engaged with, you know, or like, you know, because like, um, it just what it does is it solidifies in, in Native American thinking the idea that the symbol is the death of the thing, Oof. that the natives cultures in their gigantic diasporas, like it's like oh my god, like don't move forward with the times, and then the even more horrifying thought is that. Native Americans can guide time, which I just think as a good ironist, that should be no more threatening than Foucault guiding time, <laughs> you know? Uh, yeah, I, I agree. I think, I think it's a bad quote. I think it shows that it's a little dated in a way that I just wasn't really expecting all of a sudden to be like, Oh, well, that's that's ridiculous. Why don't we talk? Of, what? Why? Why are we doing yeah, this? Yeah, I. <clears throat> I think it's the difference between writing horror fiction about Native Americans versus a Native American horror fiction writer. Ooh. You know, it's like. People speak. <laughs> and then, but then, do you think he'd make the argument that well, you know, when they get to that point, they're no longer oppressed or something? <laughs> they're not suffering. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I'm laughing. I, I would <laughs> hope not, but <laughs> yeah, I, uh, no, it was for the first half and I still like, this is another one of the ones that I'm like, why, why do we put this stuff in here? Cause there's a lot of stuff that like, I definitely agree with like this ironist point of view that he takes on. Yeah. Especially approaching theory, philosophy, theology, all of these things. Like, I may not speak highly of religion, but I'm not discounting religion as a place that you could better yourself or no. at least borrow from. No, no. And I, I mean, I do all the time. You know? Otherwise, I'd never read St. Augustine or other people. It's like, well, nope, can't read Aquinas. He's, he's a bad object. Well, you, you know? know, as soon as you told me Kierkegaard was Christian, I burned either or. <laughs> yeah. I, I made sure to, you know, <laughs> blood pentagram in the backyard, burnt that shit, because we don't do religion up here. Apparently not. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that was really fun. I, I think, I don't think I have anything else to say. I think, I think we covered most of what I had highlighted, actually. Yeah, um, you know, like any of the other ones, I... Still would recommend reading it. There's there's a lot of good stuff in there, and you know. Yeah, and also, I mean, I've read the whole. We read chapter four, but I've read the whole book. I, you know, he talks a lot about. He gets really into different writers on suffering, and it's great. And um, in the earlier chapters, he outlines more concretely other aspects of the ironist, and um, it's a good read. 
we're going to do more Rorty in the future. I have his lecture series, Achieving Our Country, which you would very much like. So maybe a Christmas mm. gift. Ooh, I like it. Well, thank you everyone for listening. It was a good one. Until next time. <laughs>